thankful for this precious opportunity that God's given us to meet together here in his house. It's, uh, it's good to see each one of you. Very thankful for the prayer that's been offered. Uh, I would ask that each one of you would pray for us during this time that we stand before you. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I, I trust that you do. The house of God's a good place to bring your Bible. Please turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 1. The book of Revelation chapter 1. We'll begin reading in, in verse 10 of Revelation chapter 1. I'm going to read through verse 18. Before we read these verses, I want to uh, go back and grab a verse that we've used in the last several weeks. It's found in Job chapter 22 and verse 21 when Eliphaz, he said, Acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace. The lesson here is the more we know about the Lord, the more peace we will have in our, in our lives. We've considered what the Bible has to teach us about the Lord in, in many different ways. And this morning, if God would be our helper, I'd like for us to consider the Lord Jesus Christ, the judge of the whole earth. The Lord Jesus Christ, the judge of the whole earth. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, John said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Which is very amazing to me because he did not have a calendar. He didn't have a watch. But the Lord's day was important to John. So important he didn't need a watch or a calendar to tell him what day it was. This is the day of the week that I saw the Lord alive. And heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Saying, I am Alpha and Omega. The first and the last and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea, which are the seven churches of Asia. And I turned to see the voice that spake to me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. These seven golden candlesticks were allegorical, allegories, figures of the seven churches. They are the seven churches in Asia that's giving the light of God. In the midst of these seven churches, these seven golden candlesticks, he sees the one that spake, the one that had a voice like a trumpet. And notice in verse 13, he was clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. He wasn't girt about the loins, he was girt about the paps. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. These seven stars are the seven pastors of the churches. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him... I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, said unto me, Fear not, for I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. John here, before he begins to write the letters to the seven churches, before he begins to write the remaining chapters of the book of Revelation, he, he sees something. He sees these, these candlesticks, which are the churches. And he sees one in the midst, and that one in the midst is the one that liveth and was dead and is alive forevermore. Who is that? It's, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. 
Notice verse 18 didn't say, I am he that was dead and am alive. No, I am he that liveth, liveth. Why is it in that order? Because it's important that these seven churches, as well as us today, remember that Jesus is alive. He's alive. He's arose from the dead. He's on the right hand of the Father, which declares that he is who he said he is. He's done what he said he'd come into the world to do. And he will come back and get us as he said he would come back and get us and take us home to glory. I am he that liveth, liveth. And he tells John, you write about these things that thou seest. You know, when you read through the book of Revelation, the first thing to keep in mind is whatever this is about is consistent with the rest of the Bible. The book of Revelation is not a book that can be separated from the rest of the Bible and tell a story that's not in agreement, in accordance with the other 65 books. It's in accordance to everything else that's taught in Scripture. There's no contradictions in God's Word. It's one message from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Also, what do we read about here? It must be applicable to these seven churches as well as, as to us. And whatever we read, we need to keep in mind that it's in allegories, it's in signs, it's in pictures. And John is writing about these pictures, these things that he, he sees, that we would have this information. You know, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1 teaches us that this is the revelation of the devil. No, it's not the revelation of the devil. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ signified. What does the word signified mean? It means to communi communicate by, by signs. You know, most people get confused in the book of Revelation when they go flip-flopping back and forth. They take something, you know, figurative and then try to make it physical, and they'll go back and forth, back and forth, and before you know, they're so confused in the subject, they don't, they don't know really what they're teaching to begin with. The book of Revelation is about things that are, they exist, but it's communicated to us with signs and figures. It's not literal physical, but it's literal figurative. Did that make any sense by that? There's a difference in literal physical and literal figurative. This is literal physical. When I would say someone walks and they're there walking, I said that person is walking and he is walking. But if I said that person is walking like a rabbit, I'm trying to paint you a picture of them walking how fast they are by using a figurative, the figurative language of a rabbit. That doesn't mean they are a rabbit. That means they're walking like a rabbit. Or in my mind, I'm drawing a picture, they're walking like a rabbit, walking fast, or hopping along. You know, if I came into church one Sunday and it was really raining outside, and I said, wow, it's raining cats and dogs outside. Is that literal physical or literal figurative? Well, it can't be literal and figurative at the same time. Yes, it can. I just use figurative language to say something that's literally happening. Now, cats and dogs are not falling out of the sky. But if you go outside, you will get wet because it's raining cats and dogs. That was the figurative language I used to describe what's happening outside. The book of Revelation is talking about literal things, but it's figurative language to tell us about these literal things. Now, here in Revelation 1, when John sees this one in the, in the midst of the candlesticks, we're given figurative language to describe him, him. But he is there. He's really there. He's literally and spiritually there. But we have this in figurative language to describe to us how he is there. And these churches and everything that they're facing, they need to be reminded he is alive. And they need to be reminded of this too. He is the judge of the whole earth. Why? Because they're facing trouble. They're facing problems and those things they're facing are beyond their power to, to bring under any judgment. I mean, they're facing opposition of governments. They're facing opposition of powers, evil powers that are in this world. They're being persecuted, and it's beyond them to bring any judgment or reconciliation to these acts that's being done against them. But they get this message from John. There is one that's alive right now, and he is the judge of the whole earth. And he is the one that's able to execute judgment against unrighteousness. And he is the one one day that we'll see as the true and proper judge and king of the whole earth. John said, I saw him, and when I saw him, he was girt about the paths, not the loins. 
in the Bible, when one's girt about the loins, they're ready to go forward and do a work. They're ready to go into battle. But the Lord here is not ready to go into battle. He's already won the battle. The battle was won. Where did Jesus win the battle? He won the battle on the cross. <laughs> he won the battle on the cross, so his loins is no more girt. You remember in Daniel chapter 10 when Daniel saw him? Daniel saw him, his loins was girt. But that was before he would go to the cross and win the battle at the cross. Here, John sees him with his paps girt about. He's, he's sitting on the throne. He's resting. He's done with the work. The work of salvation is complete. And John looks up and he sees him and his, his hairs are white as wool. I mean, he has a white head. And the Bible said that a hoary hair is the crown of life if it be found in the way of righteousness. When John sees him with that hoary head, that head of white as wool, he understands this one that I'm looking at. Not only does he not have any battles before him concerning what he already won, but there's nothing he doesn't know. He's wise. You know, when you see someone that's in the way of righteousness all their life, when their hair becomes white, I mean, you give them respect. You go to them for advice because they've got wisdom. My grandpa used to say this, you know, a man that's going to be a fool when his head turns white, you just got a fool with a white head. <laughs> but if a man's going to do right all his life when his hair gets white, he gets respect. He gets recognition this individual knows. John said, the Lord, he's there, the judge of the whole earth. He knows, he knows. There's, there's nothing that's beyond his knowledge. But not only that, his eyes are a flame of fire. There's nothing that's not in his sight. You know, the wicked of this world think they can do things and hide, hide from law enforcement, think they can hide from the power of judgment. No one can hide from God. I mean, his eyes are in every place beholding the evil and the good, Proverbs 15, 3 says. And his feet are like fine brass. Do you remember in the Old Testament when the Lord would judge Israel, the Bible said the sky would be brass. What John is saying is this one that knows everything, that sees everything, He's able and has the power and authority to judge. And he is alive, and John wants them to know he loves, loves you, loves you. So what we have here is something figurative, something communicated by signs that we can see Jesus, he's, he's alive, and he's here, and he's the judge of the whole earth. But when we consider the subject of judgment and the Lord's judgment, that's, that's a very broad subject. You know, sometimes we find the word judgment, it's referring to something different than another time we see the word judgment in the Bible. You know, Paul told Timothy to study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Paul's not saying, Timothy, you need to divide truth from error. There's no error in the word of God. Every word of God is pure. Solomon tells us that in Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 5. All the words of God are true. <laughs> The word of God records when people lie, but it's true about them lying. Every word of God is true. When we divide the word of God, it's not truth from error. No, it's truth and truth. We keep everything in proper context. So when we consider Jesus Christ the judge of the whole earth, we need to keep in mind what context is this where he is the judge. Judge. This morning, if God be our helper, I'd like for us to consider at least four different contexts where Jesus is the judge. And then in ending, I'd like for us to consider what kind of effect it should have on us, his children, right now. The first context where Jesus is the judge, God is the judge, is concerning man in sin. When God made man, God did not make man a sinner. He did not. God did not make man in sin. God never made man to sin. God is just and holy, and when God created the earth and man, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, those things were good and very good. That's what it says. God made everything good. So when we see something wrong in this world, it's not God's fault. <laughs> it's man's fault. The Bible teaches us in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 29 that God made man upright. He made man. He made Adam upright. And when God made man, he, he was mature. He was an upright man, walked about. I mean, if I were to guess, I'd say it looked like he's somewhere around 30 years old. And he's without sin. And God put him in a deep sleep and took a rib from his side. 
And he made woman, made Eve, and gave her to Adam. You know, life was good. I mean, they were there in the garden. They could enjoy the garden. They were just told to keep it and dress it. They didn't have to go up and plant seeds and hope one day they'd grow up and then have a tomato to eat. No, they had fruit. God gave them everything that they needed. But there was a tree in the midst of the garden. God told that man, don't, don't eat that tree right there. Don't eat it. That's the only thing Adam had to do. Just don't eat that tree. Don't eat of that tree. Everything else, have at it. Enjoy life. Enjoy your wife. Enjoy your time together. Enjoy fellowship with me. And you know, you think, well, just leave that alone and you'll be fine forever, right? Seems pretty easy. I mean, God didn't make it complicated. God's commandments are not difficult. God was plain. He didn't deceive Adam. Adam knew. Adam was able to do it. Adam was upright. But Adam made the wrong choice. Adam chose to do contrary to what God commanded. Adam took of that fruit, and the Bible said that he and Eve, and he did eat with her, they ate together. If anyone tells you that Eve ate and fell first, and then Adam chased her down in the fall trying to get her out, that is not scripture. No. We did not fall in Eve. We fell in Adam. Eve did not fall until Adam ate. We're all represented in Adam. He was the head of the house. And Adam was an upright man without sin, and he made the wrong choice. Now, I want to chase a rabbit just for a moment, if you'd allow me. Here in the religious world, they like to tell you, if you'll just make the right choice, you can get a place in heaven. But how am I, who am already a sinner, to make the right choice to get a home in heaven when a man that didn't have sin couldn't make the right choice to keep his place in the garden? If Adam couldn't make the right choice to keep his place in the garden, how am I, who am already a sinner, to make a right choice to get me a home in heaven? His, his fellow would say in South Georgia, that ain't happening, Brother Ronnie. <laughs> Adam went contrary to God's commandments. When Adam did, see, Adam was the federal representative of us all. We were all in Adam. You know, when God finished creation, we were all right there in Adam. When Adam spoke, he spoke for us all. And you would say, I wish I would have been there. Uh, if you'd have been there, you'd have done it faster, and it would have been worse. It would have been your name all the way through the Bible, not Adam's. Adam represented us all. Now, how many of us know about representatives? Oh, yeah, we know that. we got representatives up in Washington, D.C., right? They're supposed to speak for us all. I wish they'd start doing it. <laughs> They're supposed to speak for us. we got someone in the Senate supposed to speak for us, the people. Adam spoke for us. God made him upright, and he did, did wrong. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. The Apostle Paul tells us about this event. In verse 27. And this verse of scripture is, is often twisted to, to try to teach something it does not teach. The Apostle Paul writes by inspiration of spirit in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27. And as it's appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. The next verse reads, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Often you hear people take this verse and they'll say, well, this verse is telling us that everybody's got an appointed time to die. This verse is not teaching that. You know, I get tickled, you know, when people say, you know, every man's got an appointed time to die and he's going to die at that appointed time. You hear about someone that, you know, smoked all their life and, you know, and I'm not condemning smokers. You know, if you like smoke, that's fine. I mean, that's your business, not mine. You know, maybe folks use, use chewing tobacco. You know, I heard a story years ago about a fellow like chewing tobacco, and they said he'd come into the church house and said the preacher got upset about smoking, people smoking in the church house, and he started preaching against smoking. And they said the guy in the back stood up and spit and said, Give him trouble, preacher. That stuff's too good to burn. <laughs> you hear somebody, you know, they're about them, they smoke all their life, you know, have trouble with alcohol all their life, have trouble with pharmaceuticals all their life. I mean, live a rough life. I mean, just destroy their life. And then they die. They die at a young age and somebody says, it was just their time to go. Are you kidding me? <laughs> they could have lived a lot longer if they'd just taken care of themselves. You know, my daddy told me when he was an older man, he said, you know, if I, if I, if I knew I was going to live this long, I'd have took better care of myself. 
The Bible says over in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 17 that a person could die before their time. Time. Meaning this, by them searching out much wickedness, searching out much ungodliness, they could destroy their lives and die long before they should have died. Why? They destroyed their life. You know, if I've got an appointed time to die, I shouldn't worry about even playing marbles out on a train track, right? Just go out here and play marbles. It doesn't matter. I can't die before it's my time, right? Somebody says, don't be playing on the train track. Why am I worried about my kids crossing the road? They can't die before their time. <laughs> you know, some things are just foolish. That's not what this text is saying. Notice it says, and as it's appointed to men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. I do know enough about the English language that as must come before so. Whatever took place in the 27th verse took place before Christ came in the world and died for our sins. Watch this. And as is appointed unto men, not a man, men wants to die. Who's that talking about? That's talking about us when we fell in Adam. When Adam sinned, we were appointed to a separation away from God. And because of that, we've all come under the judgment of God in sin. Go with me to Romans chapter 5. The Apostle Paul would give us a beautiful commentary concerning this verse. And as it's appointed to men once to die, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. There you go. And as it's appointed to men once to die, go with me just a little bit further, verse 18 of Romans 5, Therefore, as by the offense of one, the sin of Adam, judgment came upon all men into condemnation. And as it's appointed to men once to die, Romans 5.12, but after that, the judgment, Romans 5.18. And because of sin, man is under the judgment of God. We're sinners in the sight of God by representation. Adam spoke for us. We're sinners under the judgment of God by our actions, by what we've done. I mean, our actions manifest that we're sinners before God. And we're under this judgment, and God, according to... Exodus chapter 34 and verse 7 will by no means clear the guilty. God's not going to take us, our sin, and just, and just sweep it under the rug. No, God's a just judge. His judgment is true. He's righteous. God's not in heaven just sweeping things under a rug and say, well, I can just let that one go. I can just let that one go. No, God is not in heaven like some Santa Claus parent. You know, just, you know, well, I'd be all right. You know, that'd be all right. We'll let that go. No, that's not God. No, God is just and holy. One of the messages of the book of Leviticus is this. God is holy. God is holy. God is righteous. And God's mercy that he shows to us is not at the expense of his righteousness. God has mercy toward us because Jesus Christ satisfied the judgment of God. Therefore, his righteousness is upheld and he gives us mercy at the same time. That's what it means mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. But we fell under this condemnation, this judgment. And you know, we can't get ourselves out of it. Well, Brother Ronnie, surely there's something we could do. Well, we'd have to do something good to get out of it, right? For me to get out of this judgment, I've got to do something good. How many times does the Bible has to have to say, there's none that doeth good, no, not one, before we believe it? <laughs> How many times does it have to say that? Well, doesn't it say it in Psalms 14? Well, one time's enough. It also says in Psalms 53, well, two times should be plenty. It also says in Romans chapter 3, well, that, that should be plenty enough. It also says in Ecclesiastes 7.21, we also find in 1 Kings chapter 8, there's none that does good, so there's no way we can get ourselves out of this. God is the judge of the whole earth, and here we are. We're under the condemnation of God, but God loved his people before the foundation of the world. And because he loved his people before the foundation of the world, he sent his son into the world to suffer the judgment that's rightfully ours, ours. Turn with me to John chapter 12. Second context of judgment. John chapter 12, Jesus Christ, this is just a little while before he's, he's going to go to the cross. I mean, the next chapter, he's, he's at the Passover table. He introduces the communion supper that night and washes the disciples' feet. 
And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you the order of that night. The order of that night, if you compare Scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is what happened. They went in that large upper room, and they ate the Passover. They did. And Judas was there with them eating the Passover. And Jesus, he told them, one of you is going to betray me. Well, who is it? Is it I? Is it I? Well, he just nipped sop with me, and that was Judas. Judas said, is it I? He said, thou sayest, meaning you know it's you, buddy. And the Bible said that Judas immediately went out. Well, when he went out, according to John chapter 13, there was a second supper. What was that? That was communion supper. Judas was not in the room when they had communion. They took communion, and then Jesus arose from the second supper, and he began to wash their, their feet. He carried himself. The way that took place was Passover, communion, and then foot washing. Well, praise the Lord, that's what we do. We have communion and foot washing. Why do we do it that way? Because that's the way they did it in the Bible. That's why. John chapter 12 is just before that. Notice what Jesus said in verse 27. He said, now is my soul troubled. Why is his soul troubled? He knows what's in his future. Jesus knows what's going to happen when they crucify him and nail him to that cross. He knows his back is going to be whipped to ribbons. He knows his hands and feet are going to have nails drove through them. He knows there's going to be a crown of thorns drove on his head. He knows his visage is going to be marred more so than any man. He knows he's going to hang on that cross and the lights of the world are going to go out. And he's going to be there between earth and heaven suffering a judgment that's rightfully ours. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? He said, no, but for this cause came out of this hour. This is the reason I came into the world. The reason he came into the world was to do this work, to suffer this judgment for you, for you, a judgment you rightly deserve. Why? Because he loves you. And he said, Father, glorify thy name. See, the Father must be glorified. We can't glorify Him. We're in sin. In our state in sin, we can't glorify Him. But the Father must be glorified. His righteous law must be upheld. Then there came, then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The Father was glorified in Jesus' life. And the Father, His law would be glorified in Jesus' death. As Jesus upheld the law and answered the law in our room instead. The people therefore, verse 29, that stood by and heard it said that it, it thundered. Others said an angel spake to him. And Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now, now, right now is the judgment of this world. Now is the prince of this world cast out. And if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Now, now, what is he saying? Now is the judgment. Of this world. What world? What world is he talking about? Have you ever talked to people every time they see the world? It's just got to be the whole world. Every man, woman, and child. That's not the way the Bible's written. That's not even the way we talk when we talk to one another. Anytime we see the word world, we must consider the context. The context in which the word is used. Sometimes we talk about the sports world. Doesn't have much to do with me. I'm not really in the sports world. Sometimes people talk about the political world. Not talking about me, I'm not in the political world. And sometimes people talk about the news world. <laughs> Thanks be to God, I'm not in that world. <laughs> We've got to consider the context. Anytime the word world is mentioned, it's making reference to a parameter of something. And everything within that parameter is under consideration. All right, watch this. Romans chapter 1 and verse 8. The Apostle Paul thanked the Lord that the faith of the Romans, their, their faith toward, toward the Lord, was spoken of throughout the whole world. That's the text. Your, your faith, your believing in Jesus Christ, your service to him is spoken of throughout the whole world. You think the American Indians heard about that, Brother John? No. What about the folks that's there in Egypt? Did they hear about that? Uh-uh. What world is he talking about? He's talking about the world of the disciples. The world of the disciples heard about the faith and the church at Rome. What about Luke chapter 2 when there went out a command from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be taxed? The Bible says that. Luke chapter 2 verse 1. You ever paid any taxes to Caesar Augustus? I pay enough taxes already. I don't want to have to pay any to him. <laughs> but that was the world of the Roman Empire. That's what was under consideration. Romans Hebrews. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9 verse 26. The verse right before the one we read a while ago. 
The Bible says that when Jesus came into the world and died on the cross, there was the end of a world. Now, in the end of the world, Christ hath appeared to put away the sins of many. In the end of what world ended when Jesus, it was the world of the first covenant of service. That world ended. When the Bible talks about a world, it's talking about a specific world. What's the world under consideration? It's the world of his children. It's the world to come in heaven above. It's the elect world, God's world, those that he loved before the foundation world, all those that will be with him in glory. That's the world under consideration. Now is the judgment of my world, my world, because you know what? His people are his world, are his world. Whoa, I love that. You ever had someone that's just in love with someone so much, loved them so much? They said, they're my entire world. You ever saw someone love their kid so much? That, that kid, those kids are my entire world. Somebody love his wife so much to say, my wife is my entire world. What this text is saying is, you are his world. That's how much he loves you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the prince, the accusation of the prince of this world. Any condemnation is cast out, it's gone. And if I be lifted up on that cross, I will draw all men, all men under consideration, all kinds of men unto me. Again, people see all men, they think, well, that's talking about everybody, right? No, it's not. I remember in Acts chapter 19 when the disciples there in Ephesus heard the gospel and believed the gospel. They took their books of the curious arts, black magic. They took those books and they burned them before all men. I didn't see them burn them that day. But it was all men in that context that saw them burn the books. Apostle Paul also turned church at Rome there in Romans chapter 16 and verse 19. You know, concerning their obedience, it's went abroad throughout the whole unto all men. He said, all, all men has, has heard about your obedience. That's the all men again of the disciples. The disciples. Jesus said, if I be lifted up on earth, I will draw all men in this context. All kinds of men in this context. Remember Jesus when he said there in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 31 about putting the Lord first in your life and his kingdom. He said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He said, all these things, these things of the world will be added unto you. You remember that text? Turn with me there to Matthew chapter 6. Let's read that and we'll compare it to another text real quick and see if you understand Just a little bit about what Jesus is saying here. He said in verse 31, Take no thought, saying, What should we eat, or what should we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. Jesus, when he preached this same sermon in a different place, which teaches me it's all right to preach the same sermon twice, he calls the Gentile worlds, the Gentile people, he called them the world. Notice what he said in verse 30, For all these things... In Luke chapter 12, do the nations of the world seek after? And I don't know how I went from all men back to the world, but I did that, okay? <laughs> all men in the world must be kept in context. You know, sometimes my mouth gets ahead of my brain, my brain gets ahead of my mouth, or uh, the preaching gets ahead of both of us. <laughs> but anyway, back to John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, the world under consideration is his world. The all men are all kinds of men that's in this context. And Jesus said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw these all men unto me. And that word draw there is not enticing. That means bringing them to himself. How are we in heaven? How are we belonging to God? By what he done, he's drawn us in the same way that a that man would draw water out of a well. I mean, a man doesn't stand at the top of the well and say, hey, a little water down the bottom of the well, would you please come up here? No, he's got to go down there and use his power and pull that water up. And that's the way we're brought to God by what Jesus done, done for us. This text is saying now is the judgment of this world. The one that has judgment came into this world to suffer the judgment. Why was his back whipped to ribbons? Why? Why was the plowers, the Bible said the plowers are plowed upon my back. Why did that happen? Because, see, we turned our back on God. Jesus' back was whipped to ribbons because it was, it was you, me. We turned our back on God. He suffered that judgment for us. Why was his hands? Why did he have nails drove through his hands? Because it was the works of my hands. It was against God. He suffered for my evil works. Why did his feet have nails drove through it? Because my evil walk did not glorify God. 
Jesus, he suffered for my evil walk. Why do you have a, his side pierced? Why was that? Why did it happen like that? I, I'll tell you why. Because it was me that left God's side. I should have been there by God's side glorifying him. But I left him. I forsook him. And Jesus, he suffered for what I've done. His visage was so marred more than any man because of my shamefulness. My shamefulness and my sin and what I've done. And Jesus suffered that. Now that Jesus has suffered that, the Bible says, who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? (laughs) There's nobody. It's God that justified us on the cross of Calvary. Oh, say, now we see that we were under the judgment of God, but now Jesus has come and suffered the judgment. That means there's no judgment left for us to face, right? Okay, let's take that and let's go to the last day, the judgment when Jesus will appear. There's a time coming that there will be a judgment. There's a time coming when the Lord will come in the clouds and he'll set up on the throne of his glory and all people is going to be gathered before him. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31, when that happens and he's got his holy angels with him, nobody's going to be left out that day. And he's going to divide all nations as a shepherd would divide his sheep from the goats. Notice they're his sheep. But they're the goats. Now, I want to tell you, a goat's never been a sheep, and a sheep's never been a goat. Now, a lot of times a sheep can act like a goat. <laughs> but a sheep's never been a goat, and a goat's never been a sheep. And on this day, there's going to be someone on his right-hand side and someone on his left-hand side. Those on his right-hand side are his people, his sheep. And they'll hear these words, Come, you blessed of my Father, and hear the kingdom prepare for you for the foundation of the world. Who's doing this? The judge of the whole earth is doing this. And those on his left-hand side will hear these. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, and the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And they'll be cast into a fire that burns forever and ever. But it's not both. It's not both. It's either one or the other. These on the right-hand side, the reason they hear those words is because of John chapter 12. Jesus suffered their judgment for them. See, God is just and holy. Somebody's got to pay for the sin. You're not going out with it not paid for. Or will suffer eternally in hell. But it can't be both. It can't be both. See, the one or the other. Either Jesus died for all of our sins or will suffer in hell forever. But it can't be both. If it's both, God is unjust. That's double jeopardy. A man can't pay for all of his crime and then get out of jail and say, no, you got to go back to jail again for the same crime. No, I just paid for all my crime. There is no court system that's just that can uphold that. Either Jesus paid for it all or I will pay forever. But it cannot be both. Those on Jesus' left-hand side are right before the throne of the Father. And I believe it's just a few. It's a small number. Those on the right-hand side, when they hear those words, they're hearing those words in a declarative sense of God's love. On that day, the last day, there will be a general judgment and separation. That's what's happening. You know, those on Jesus' right-hand side, those that he suffered the judgment for, the judgment that happens that day is not executive. No, it's declarative, declarative judgment. It will be declared that Jesus died for your sins on the cross of Calvary. Now, my hope is I'm over here. I'm with the Lord on his right-hand side. Well, Brother Roddy, why do you have that hope? I, I feel guilty for my sin. I love the Lord. I love his word. I love his church. All these are evidences that he paid for my sins on the cross of Calvary. You know, and people in the world say, well, you've got to do this, 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 and get on the right-hand side. I'll say if they've got a desire to do this, 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 they're already on the right-hand side. How about that? <laughs> if they've got a desire to repent of their sin, they're already on the right-hand side. How can they desire to repent of their sin if they didn't see themselves a sinner? And how are they going to see themselves a sinner if they're in the darkness of sin? Okay, for a man to see himself a sinner and desire to repent, he must already be a born-again child of God. Well, they have to exercise faith to get on the right-hand side. Okay, the Bible says faith is the fruit of the Spirit, not the root of the Spirit. If they got faith in their life, well, they've got to be a born-again child of God. It's the fruit. I mean, you don't see an apple hanging out in midair and think, well, one day there'll be an apple tree here. <laughs> no, there's an apple tree, and the apple tree is there, and there's life there, and then the apple just bears fruit that it is an apple tree. If you see someone that's got faith in their life, they're already on the right-hand side. They're already a child of God. You see someone that loves the church? The Bible says 
of those fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, gentleness, faith, meekness, and temperance, if you see any of those fruit, that means the Spirit of God is in them. They are already born again. And all I'm here to do is just give you assurance, dear child of God, that you're on that right-hand side so that when you get to heaven, there will not be an executive judgment, but a declarative judgment that God loved you and came into the world and suffered that judgment for you. Last day, last day, what's going to happen? Well, Brother Ryan, tell us what's going to happen. We're going to all get to heaven, and all of us that stand in line, and God, he's going to have a big screen TV, and he's going to play your life. This is your life. This is what you've done, and if the good works will outweigh the evil works, then Peter will welcome you on into heaven. Peter don't have the keys to heaven. The Lord dies. The Lord gave Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven, the church. He gave him some authority in the church, but not heaven above. The Bible says that verse there in Revelation, Jesus has the keys of hell. That means nobody's going into hell unless Jesus says so. And you think he's going to put someone in hell that he loved and died for on the cross? No, that's not going to happen. What's going to happen then, Brother Ronnie? You think the Lord's going to embarrass his children? He died for them on the cross. You think he's going to get you in heaven? And something that you've done that nobody knows about, and we've all got those times. <laughs> Please tell me it's not just me. <laughs> Lord's going to get us there, and he's going to be like, oh, you remember you did this? Hey, look, all y'all, this is what he did. I remember he did this. He did do this when he was 11 years old. His mama and daddy thought he did it, but he lied about it. If my mama gets this, she's going to know I did something. I was 11 years old, but I'm ashamed of. Is God going to do that? Is he going to embarrass? you think God's going to embarrass his children? All right, what about you, your children? They make mistakes, right? Kids make mistakes. Do you like to take your kids when they make a mistake and just embarrass them in front of everybody? Do you like doing that? I don't. I love my kids. I love my kids too much to embarrass them in front of everybody. But you know, my love for my children pales in comparison to God's love for you. You think God's going to embarrass you in heaven? He is not going to embarrass you in heaven. You're going to hear these words. Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There will not be one tongue Moved against you at that declarative judgment because you will be taken into heaven just like you never sinned because Jesus suffered your judgment for you on the cross. Now, when I think about that, I'm not really worried about the final day. Are you? I'm not scared. You know, John said we can have boldness in the day of judgment. I'm looking for the Lord to come back. I've got a hope in Him, and my hope is in Him and what He's done for me and the evidence I see in my life. I'm not afraid. I'm not hiding behind chairs. <laughs> I hope he don't come back today. I, I hope he does come back today. I want this world and all this mess to end. I'm excited about seeing the Lord. I tell you what, I'm ready to stop preaching and just be in his presence. How about that? I'm ready to see all the funeral homes get put out of business. That's what's going to happen. I told a man one day when the Lord comes back, he's going to put the funeral homes out of business. They'll be able to keep up no business with the Lord. I'm looking forward to that day. Now, until that day, when we'll see him as that judge... He's on a judgment seat right now. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 teaches us of a judgment seat that the Lord Jesus Christ is on right now. What judgment seat is that? It's the temporal judgment seat of him judging us, his children. Notice what the Apostle Paul would say in, in verse 8 and Verse 6, he said, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that while we're home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. How many times have you heard that at funeral service? That when we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord? Therefore we're always confident, knowing that while we're home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. What is he saying? When my soul and spirit is here in this body, my soul and spirit is not with the Lord in heaven. But when my soul and spirit is separated from this body, my soul and spirit will be with the Lord in heaven. When a person passes into this life, their soul and spirit is no longer in that body, but their soul and spirit is in heaven. Now, when the Lord died for us on the cross, he died for us soul, body, and spirit. The soul and spirit of those that have passed are with the Lord right now. One day he's going to come back and get this body. God didn't just buy us, you know, 66.6%. No, he bought us all. Verse 7, he said, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk believing in God. He said, we're confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. I mean, the Apostle Paul longed for that. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. 
What does that mean? Well, Paul believes that when he's absent from the body, he's going to be accepted with the Lord in heaven. According to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6, we're made accepted in the beloved. Paul is confident that he'll be accepted in heaven by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the reward of his work. See, heaven is not our reward. Heaven is the reward of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we'll get to enjoy the reward of his work. The Bible said in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 10, his work was before him, but his reward is with him, the reward of his work. Heaven is not our reward. Heaven is our inheritance. <laughs> and we'll be joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're going to have rewards in heaven, and I'm a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to have more than I've got. You're going to have more than the Lord's got because I'm joint heirs with him. We're all going to have the same in heaven. But there are rewards for children of God here in this life. And the Apostle Paul said, look, I believe I'll be accepted in heaven by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, but I want my labor, what I'm doing right now, to be accepted in his, in his sight. Because he's on a judgment seat right now, judging us, his children, as a father would judge his children. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's the judgment seat right now. He is the judge of us, his children, whether we're doing right or wrong. And if we do wrong, what's going to happen? Get chastened. We'll get chastened because we're his children. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And blessed is the man whom the Lord chasteneth and teacheth him out of his law. David said that, I think it's in Psalms 92, verse 14. I mean, Solomon teaches that very subject there in Proverbs chapter 3. The Lord will chasten us, but when we do right, he'll reward us. He'll, wow, I'm going to tell you the rewards of God are better than what the world can give you, right? Remember Abraham when he did right? God came to Abraham. Told him what he was. He said, I'm thy exceeding shield and great reward. Meaning this, Abraham, you don't need anything from the king of Sodom. I'm able to give you more than any king in this world can give you. Just obey me. Follow me. Paul would say, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I want everyone to be obedient to the Lord. Why? Because I know the Lord has chased us if we do wrong. He is the judge of the whole earth. He's the judge of the whole earth. And God will chasten us for our wrongdoings. Sometimes he'll chasten us immediately after we do it. I mean, that's what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. That's what happened to Uzziah. Sometimes it's a little while later, but God, God will chasten us. But I will assure you this, God's chastening is not for other people's eyes. God's chastening is for, between you and him. And if God's chastening you, you will know it's him chastening you. See, that was what was wrong with Job's miserable comforters. Job's miserable comforters, they thought, well, if somebody's suffering, they're being chastened by God. No, that doesn't mean that. <laughs> I mean, there's consequences for just living in a wicked world, you know. Just because you're having a hard time, that doesn't mean God's chastening you. But if God is chastening you, you you'll know it. And it should give you comfort when he chastens you because it's evidence that he loves you and cares about you. And his chastening of you is not for him to love you. But his chastening of you is so that the world could tolerate you. That you'll be a better disciple. You know, my daddy, when he when he gave me a whipping, and my daddy believed in whippings. I mean, he didn't believe in sparing the rod. You know, daddy, he believed that text. You know, he that spared the rod hated the child. My daddy loved me. I knew it. <laughs> I said, boy, brother, you love me. He, he told me, he said, son, I'm not giving you a whipping so that I would love you. I'm giving you a whipping so the world could put up with you. He said, because if I don't straighten you out on this, he said, the world's not going to be put up with you. You're not going to be able to have fellowship with other people in this world if I don't give you this whipping. Well, the Bible teaches us when the Lord, who's the judge of the whole earth, chastens us, his children, there can be different responses. Turn with me real quick to that Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to close in just a second. Not every child of God responds the same way. Verse 3, some children of God, the Apostle Paul said in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, For consider him that endures such a contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your own mind. Fainting is when you just give up. I can't do it. I mean, he's chasing me. I just can't do what he's asking me to do. I mean, that, that's fainting, which is not true. God's never called on us to do anything that his grace is not sufficient to help us do it. That's why Paul said, I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. Well, what's another way that we respond? Verse 5, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. Despising means regarding as nothing. 
That's getting bitter and not better. How many people, when they're chasing, they get bitter and not better? They regard it as nothing. Ain't going to put up with it. Some children of God get bitter and not better. This is what we should do with the chastening of God. Verse 11, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness. That's what it should do for us. That's the response God's chastening should have with us. It should make us better, yielding more fruit to his, to his glory, to his glory. Now, we consider him that's the judge of the whole earth, who was everyone's judge in sin, that came in the world to suffer our judgment on the cross, that one day was set on the throne of glory to show that he's the judge of the whole earth, that judges us as children, it, it should have an effect on us right now. It should cause us to understand any judgment that we make in our life. And by the way, we make judgments every day. We should make it not with the standard of our thoughts or what we think, but with the standard of the judge of the whole earth. You know, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, when it says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. <laughs> it ain't telling you not to make any judgment at all. Just a few verses below that, he says, Cast not your pearl before swine. That's some kind of judgment, right? Now, what he's saying is, don't make judgments in accordance to your sight and your thinking. And your carnal way, make judgments in accordance to a better standard. Don't be judgment. Whatever judge you, any way you judge, you be ready to be judged by that standard yourself. You remember over in uh, John chapter 7, when Jesus said, Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. You know, judge not by the way it appears to your carnal eyes and the way it appears to your carnal thinking, but you make judgments. The judgments you make, you make it in accordance to a righteous standard, which is the standard of God. And every judgment I make in life, whatever decision I make in life, whatever path I make, I need to be making that in accordance to a righteous standard. I should think about him being the judge of the whole earth. God is the judge of the whole earth. And if I'm his child, if I'm his subject in his kingdom, every decision I make should be made in accordance to a better standard than I have just of myself. It should be made in accordance to the word of God. The church. You know, the church has been given authority. Yeah, the church has been given authority. The church has got to make judgments. Now, I don't want anyone to think, well, who's Brother Ronnie talking about here? No, I'm not talking about anybody in the church, okay? I'm just talking about the subject of church discipline. We make judgments in the church. We don't make judgments on who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. That's not our job. That's God's job. But we can make judgments on lifestyle, the way people's living, if they can participate in the fellowship of the church. Why do we do that? That the Spirit of Christ may be saved in the church. It's more important to us to have Christ welcome here in, in the church. So if someone's not living right, I don't care what the world says. Doesn't matter what the, what the world says. Well, that should be accepted. We should just accept that. You know, the world just accepts it when people live like that. Why can't you just accept it? Well, why do you want to be so different? Because I know that there is a judge of the whole earth. And he's given me righteous judgment. And I'm not here to please the world. I'm here to please him. Please him. Therefore, I want to do everything in the house of God, even church discipline, to please him. That he would feel welcome here in the house. Because, look, it doesn't matter if I'm offended. It really doesn't matter if you're offended. The person we don't want offended is God. God, that's, that's who we do not want to offend God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the judge of the whole earth. May God rest and bless you in our prayer. If there's anyone here today.